One thing you can count on foodies for is loving fads. People become obsessed with the next big thing. Pig's feet, picklebacks, lavender ice cream, cronuts. Personally, it seems like as soon as I find out about a trend, it's already over. But our next guest points out some of the problems with the trendiness of food, especially when it's an entire culture's cuisine that suddenly gets declared up and coming by a big name chef. Hi, I'm Kushma Shah. I am a senior food and drink features editor at Thrillist, or some variation of that title. It's all very TBD. Uh, and I cover everything food and drink. And Kushbu, can you tell me a little bit about your relationship to food? Like, what foods do you remember eating a lot growing up? Who cooked meals in your family when you were a kid? Yeah, I grew up extremely blessed. My mom is an amazing cook and is a superstar when it comes to making Indian food. Uh, my family are, my parents are immigrants from India. And I never realized, like, just sort of how lucky I was to grow up eating like fresh hot rotis, like made from scratch. Like my mom would make ghee from scratch. She made like the best dolls, like the best vegetables. She was amazing at making Indian sweets. Um, and she would cook us. Someone who has a full-time job as a dentist and runs her own practice would still find time to like cook these amazing meals for my family every night. Um, but I sort of started getting into cooking because my mom wouldn't really make stuff that wasn't Indian food. So if I didn't want it, I had to figure out how to make it for myself. So so what foods did you cook for yourself a lot growing up? Like, are we talking like macaroni and cheese and cut up hot dogs or something? A little we fancy. do a lot of like fancy riffs on um, pastas or like, like an elegant grilled cheese. Or I would love like Japanese and Chinese ingredients. Like my parents just... They don't eat Japanese and Chinese food, and, like, that really sucks in a way um, because we just never go out to eat it or we never bring it home, you know, as takeout or we'll just never make it. So, you know, I would buy, like, so much soy sauce and, like, black Chinese vinegar and, like, mess around uh, with these kinds of things. Like, my mom's still mad at just how many sauces I've left in her pantry, like, <laughs> and I've moved out of my house, like, over a decade ago, so... <laughs> And your soy sauce is still there. <laughs> yeah, all of my, because I would just buy all of these, like, little things. I loved the Asian supermarket in town, and, like, the moment I got my license is the moment I would just, like, I'd be like, oh, mom, do you need to go grocery shopping for you? And then I would also come back with, like, a haul for myself, um, <laughs> which still pisses her off to no end. <laughs> so once you want to start writing about food, what feels to you about the way that we talk about food? Yeah, so I really thought I was going to be a doctor. I was like 100% convinced in college that I was going to be a doctor. I was pre-med, did the whole nine yards. Um, but there was always a part of me that didn't 110% want to go to medical school. And sort of like I went to school in New York City and combining that with like just all the Food Network I'd watch and like all the Bon Appetit and like Severe I was reading. I was like, man, I could do this too. You know, I was an English major. Um, and... Just sort of early on, I always realized that food is like so deeply entrenched with identity. My family is actually Jain, which is this sort of small religion in India um, that's sort of what I call like next level vegetarianism. And uh, I always explained it through the plate, like through what Jains eat. Um, and that's why, you know, I fell in love with this idea of being able to tell stories about people uh, through a lens that everyone understands and for the most part, you know, loves. Like everyone has 
some relationship to food at the end of the day. Well, so speaking of um, food through a lens that everyone can understand, you recently wrote an article for Thrillist about the problems with calling an ethnic cuisine a trend, and it's focused on the up-and-coming trendiness of Filipino food. Um, and part of that is, part of that whole article is about, like, the idea that a food becomes hip when it becomes, like, approved or beloved by white people. Mm-hmm. But when it's just eaten by people of color or the people who are part of the culture that it's from, it's not considered trendy. So when did you start noticing that Filipino food was becoming hip and why did that raise a red flag for you? Yeah, I, you know, I saw that article in in 2012 where Andrew Zimmern like, you know, gave an interview and of course that was the nugget that was sort of like brought out, you know, brought out from it and that became the headlines of everything that Andrew Zimmern says that Filipino food is going to be like the next big thing. And I was like, Okay, interesting. And then I would keep—I kept seeing that headline every single year up until this year. Also, how can we keep saying that this is like the next big trend year after year after year for basically five years? When you know the Filipino community has been in the United States um, since the 1800s at least, uh, and you know Filipino people have been eating Filipino food for literally centuries. It's like an entire cuisine. Like it didn't just. Uh, it wasn't just created, you know, it's been around forever, but you're just noticing now. And like, that's what got me a little bit riled up about that. So, I mean, the big thing here is that as like different cuisines gain more popularity through mainstreaming and through heralding from white tastemakers, like the chefs you just mentioned, mm-hmm. what, what problems emerge for those like quote ethnic cuisines? What patterns have you seen transpire when a cuisine becomes hip? Yeah, the people who cook it and the people who've spent time developing the cuisine and, like, putting a lot of love and time into mastering the cuisine, like, they don't get credit anymore. And, like, the history and their history, their culture's history is, like, no longer respected. Things are sort of cherry-picked from those cuisines and then diluted. And then the people who profit off of those are often not the people from those quote-unquote ethnic communities, those immigrant communities um, they're the cherry pickers that manage to make all the money and get all the fame and get all the sort of benefits that comes with, you know, something becoming a trend. They lose ownership. These immigrant communities, like, they lose ownership and control in a way over how their culture and cuisine is represented. Do you think you can give an example of where you've seen that in the past? Like, what other cuisines have you seen that happen to where you've been like, ooh, that's like white people cherry picking part of this cuisine and then profiting off of it? rather than, uh, you know, it becoming popular and then everyone benefiting. Yeah, I mean, even you can see this, like, with Filipino food specifically, like, all this, the rise of, like, ube ice cream, like, these singular ingredients and dishes that are sort of pulled from these cultures and then they just appear on menus sort of everywhere. Or, like, you think about it with Korean food, all of a sudden all these chefs were using, like, gochujang in their you know, in their meat dishes and they get heralded for using this like funky, spicy ingredient, fish sauce, same thing with Vietnamese food. You know, all these chefs are making like fish sauce caramels now. And like, everyone's like, whoa, so cool and interesting. But fish sauce has been around forever and it used to be considered something that was like stinky. Like basically these people, in a way they get to make fun of you growing up for what you brought to school to eat for lunch and now they're taking those exact same things and making just like 
hundreds and thousands of dollars off of it. <laughs> um, and, you know, that can be a little bit disheartening. Can you, can you point to a couple examples of where you've seen that happen, where a food becomes trendy and then the people who've been making that food historically, uh, you know, are priced out of the places that are now making it a big deal? Yeah, totally. And, like, let me preface this by saying, like, the chefs that have gotten uh, sort of a lot of fame um, for cooking these foods have also worked extremely hard. This is not to say that they shouldn't get success from cooking these foods, but it just shouldn't also block the way for chefs from those communities to also profit and to also uh, gain recognition for what they're doing. So probably the two most prominent examples of stuff like this happening is Andy Ricker, who's known for um, his Pock Pock restaurants, which started in Portland, Oregon, and has expanded to New York City, Los Angeles. Um, and he's sort of, in many ways, considered the preeminent Thai expert in the United States. Um, and for most people, they can't name someone else like so tied to the Thai, to Thai cuisine in the United States. You know, he's the person that's always quoted in articles. He's the Thai restaurant that people, you know, visited, especially when Pak Pak was just breaking onto the scene. And the same sort of goes for like Rick Bayless in Chicago. You know, Chicago is such a major hub for Mexican culture and Mexican food. And yet, can most people name another chef, you know, doing Mexican food that is Mexican in Chicago that isn't Rick Bayless? Like, and in Rick Bayless, it's not Mexican, you know, and no, for the most part, the answer is no, you know, even as a food writer, like I have a hard time coming up with some of these examples. And what's, what's your approach to these kind of problems? Like as you're, you're a food writer, so it's your job to actually articulate a lot of these things that um, are very complicated. And then also you're a food consumer and you like to try new foods. So in your habits, both as a writer and as an eater, like how do you try to approach a cuisine respectfully and share it respectfully um, rather than perpetuating inequities? Yeah, as a writer, as an editor, I've been putting a lot more effort into making sure that the into my sources, like the people who are telling these stories. Like I really think about who's going to be my source in the story. And I really want people from those communities to be able to tell their stories in their own words and that I should just be giving them an outlet to be able to do that. Um, so it's taking a little more time to do that. It's not being as lazy about it. You know, it's not using the same three or four people over and over again because it's easy to use those people. It's finding the people that maybe haven't been interviewed for articles before, but do actually have a lot to say about something, you know, and making sure to give them the time and the space um, to speak about it. 